Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. podcast is proudly sponsored by Spider ETFs. From ETFs to model portfolios, Spider relentlessly pursues new ways to provide solutions to investors' most complex investment challenges. And for investors who want to align their values to their investment strategies, the Spider S&P ASX200 ESG Fund or E200 can be a sustainable alternative to Australia's flagship benchmark. This material is general information only. Investing involves risks including the risk of principal. Investors should consider the PDS available SSGA.com before making an investment decision. Products issued by State Street Global Advisors, Australia Services Limited, AFSL number 2 G'day, how's it going? What do you know? Striker like Clayton here from XY, chatting with Rory from the ASX, mate. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Look, um, you know, we, we decided to sit down and do another five-part uh, ethical investment series. Um, the ASX recently re- released a, a study, um, had some really... I would say, interesting insights into female behavior, um, investment behavior, I should say. And uh, more, more than just that, there's a lot going on in terms of ESG on the ASX, right? And so there's a couple of things that I just wanted to flesh out with you. I reached out to ASX and you said, all right, Clayton, I'll come on if I have to walk <laughs> across the road to Customs House. And so we got you here. So um, I guess first things first, um, in terms of products coming to market that are on the ASX or potentially on the way to be coming to the ASX or, or the buzz or the activity or the, the investment amounts, what from your point of view is happening, uh, whether it's with an advisor or retail investing, what's happening with ethical investments from your point of view? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe if I start macro and then d- dive down into into ethical, um, just to set the scene, I suppose, for any advisors out there that uh, aren't familiar with using the, the products that are available on the ASX. Um, so ASX, uh, as everyone will know, is, is, is quite uh, famous for listed <laughs> equities. I, I hope everyone would, would know that bit. But um, you know, over the last, I suppose, five to 10 years, there's been a really strong growth in the number of investors and also advisors that are using products that are listed on the ASX. So, you know, historically that was listed investment companies and trusts, but over the last 10 years, that is increasingly becoming more about ETFs. Uh, and over the last five years as well, uh, ASX launched uh, unlisted managed funds or what we call M fund. Uh, and again, that's growing uh, and particularly amongst advisor usage as well. So, for financial advisors that are out there, they obviously have access to the 2,000 listed companies that are available on ASX. They have access to over 100 uh, listed investment companies and trusts, over 200 ETFs and over 200 unlisted managed funds or, or M funds. So that's sort of the, the, the macro theme, uh, I think. And then, so what we're now starting to see, and it's um, you know very prevalent specifically, I suppose, with ETFs 
and also unlisted managed funds is a range of uh, investment strategies, uh, investment markets, be that global equities or, or asset classes such as fixed income um, that are becoming uh, increasingly available. Um, so for example, with, with ETFs, you can play out specific themes that might be interested um, to a particular investor demographic or to a particular advice practice. Further to that, now we're seeing more ESG products come to to the ASX in the form of uh, exchange traded funds and also as as unlisted managed funds. Um, and I think it's it, it's really interesting, right? We all know that over the last couple of years, there's been a huge growth in the amount of capital that is flowing into ESG funds, um, and and I think it's a very positive thing to see that now occurring on the ASX. Yeah. Um, do you have any idea? Off the off sort of the top of your head, in terms of inflows into, let's say, not just direct stocks, but uh, managed funds or ETFs, do you know how much uh, funds are getting invested into ETFs compared to the unlisted managed funds? Specifically for ESG? No, just in general. Oh, in general. Um, in terms of inflows, it's it's hard to it's actually a relatively hard number to get unless you you buy that that data set, <laughs> which 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 we don't happen to do. But um, to give you a sense, there's about sixty billion dollars in funds under management sitting in exchange traded products, um, and that has um, increased substantially over the last number of years. Um, so you know, I think it, it's fair to say that there's as a percentage of the total inflows into uh, the, let's call it the, the investment product market in Australia, ETFs are increasingly be gaining a larger uh, share of that market. There's still obviously a long way to go. Um, I don't think it's fair necessarily to compare ourselves like this, but there's about $900 billion that's sitting on platforms in Australia. Right. Historically, a lot of that money will be sitting in unlisted managed funds. And I think now if you look at the, the, the inflows that are going into exchange-traded funds, um, I think it would be fair to say that exchange-traded funds are starting to compete um, in that space in terms of the percentage share of inflows. But I don't have the specific data set off the top of my head. No, no I totally. Look, uh, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, but there's some interesting insights there. I didn't realize there was almost a trillion dollars sitting on platform. So if we move across to the ESG ETFs, um, what, uh, if any, uh, insights are you finding? Because I realize that the ASX just released an Australian investor survey, uh, sorry, Australian investor study. Um, is there much, is there certain demographics that are more attracted to the ESG? Um, or what, what sort of insights are you, are you able to glean from the recent study that you guys did? Yeah, so in terms of the, the insights that came out about ESG uh, from the study specifically was around uh, those demographics. So, so what it, the study showed is we asked a question around what factors are you likely to consider when making an investment decision? Um, and we had ESG as, a, as part of a multi-select uh, response there. So uh, about 19%, so almost um, you know one in five, uh, next generation investors, uh, ESG is a top consideration for them when they're when they're thinking about where to invest their money. Um, for other age uh, groups, that is less than 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 one in five. 
Um, so for sure, it's in that next generation category. Which is under 25 years of age. Under 25 years of age um, in, the, in the way that we broke it up in our study. Yep. Okay. Is there... Um, is there because I'm kind of interested because in the older demographics that sort of DIY, um, you know, the, the retirees, um, whether they're getting advice or not, I I haven't seen anything to show me that they're leading the way in terms of changing their investment preferences. But did anything sort of come out in that older cohort about how they view uh, ethical investing at all? Not specifically, sadly enough. Um, we didn't focus the study specifically on, on ESG or to yeah. generate any insights out of that. Um, it just wasn't the, I suppose, the, the, the focus of the study. Um, but suffice to say, I think that's right. I think the older, um, older generation haven't been so focused on ESG. Uh, as an investment strategy and and it's definitely seems to be at this stage anyway the younger investors that it's more top of mind for them yeah interesting and um and in that study it was saying that the younger that the person was the more likely they were to invest a larger portion of their money during this covid period yeah that's right so the the investor study was Which surprised me i like you know what it is it's they can't go to the bar that's right. Yeah, <laughs> they're all um, investing in, in micro investing apps. Exactly. Um, it, it, our timing of the study actually was really interesting. So ASX does this study every every two to three years, and we've right. been doing it for over thirty years. And uh, we actually happened to so there's obviously a long planning process that happens to go into a study like this um, to call itself the Australian Investor Study. And uh, this time round, actually, incidentally, we partnered with Investment Trends, um, which would be the group that would be familiar to it. I'm sure a number of your listeners, as they spoke, they focus specifically on financial services. Yep. Um, and they were incredible to work with throughout this period. But as we were fleshing out the questions and the insights that we wanted to get from the study, uh, we were in market and getting results back during January. And then obviously the results came back, uh, let's call it a couple of weeks um, throughout that January period. And then we were sitting there at the end of February, beginning of March, and COVID had hit. <laughs> and so the group of us that were responsible for analyzing this and, and uh, I suppose leading the direction of the study, uh, all of a sudden our results were not necessarily null and void, but they had been impacted significantly by, you know, by the, the pandemic. Um, so what we did at the time is we made a decision actually to go back out to market and take a what we called a smaller pulse survey. So in that first survey sample, we uh, surveyed 5,000 uh, retail investors. And in the smallest pulse survey in May, we surveyed 500 right. uh, retail investors. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to understand how had their uh, investing behavior changed throughout COVID, how had their attitudes to risk or diversification, how had that changed, even how had their attitudes towards advice changed throughout that COVID period. And there were some really interesting insights that, that came out through that period. Um, sorry for the long kind of story there, but, but to, to your specific point, that that's right, uh, younger generation uh, investors were more likely to uh, pile their, their cash into high growth uh, strategies through that COVID period. Yeah, that, that was definitely and, a little bit of an interesting yeah. one. I was not <laughs> expecting that. Um, one of the, uh, there was a couple of things around advice actually that mm. I wanted to touch on, which was awesome to see. 
um, a huge portion of their of the investor base, if they had an advisor, were happy. I think it was above eighty percent or something like that. Were happy with what their advisor had done during the COVID period. Yes. Which, I mean, I'm just over the moon to hear. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a great result, isn't it? It's a. It's a good. Um, I think talking point for the advice industry. The the other point um, that was really su- not surprising to me, but I had just just never had access to this data point before. I suppose is that sixty three percent of Australians are open to receiving advice. So good, right? There's there's nineteen point four million adult Australians, and sixty three percent of them are open to receiving advice. Mm. Now we not all know that there's there's barriers or perceptions to overcome in, in in order to get them from that point to actually receiving advice but it's yeah. a great starting point well it is a great starting point and i think traditionally as you'd imagine i've said this a hundred times on the podcast but traditionally i think advice only catered to one uh, or, or not one but a select style of personality and that was you're the type of person that wants to sit in a room with a an expert for an hour once or twice a year and discuss in detail each financial performance and then review what has happened the year prior. Mm. I mean, that was kind of the relationship that occurred during um, a certain stage of the advice, uh, I would say, evolution. However, advice now has moved on from just that conversation not for everyone, and some advisors choose to stay there, and some clients choose to stay there for good reason because, I mean, that's what they want. Mm. But that that sixty three percent of people that are open to advice, a huge number of those, and are interested in a totally different style of advice where investments are um, not the main focus, but become a part of the. Uh, especially with the intro, it was so much money going into ETFs, and most of those being passive. Almost the conversation to a certain segment of the population is, hey, look, we can't predict the market. We can't, um, you know, outperform the market. So what we're going to do is just make sure that everything's tidy, put away and invested safely and securely. But we don't need to make that the focus. We need to make what you want out of life as your focus and what your short term money goals are, as well as your 30, 40 year money goals. As a part of that 63% and some more interesting stuff that's um, in your study, but probably aligns a bit more to that ESG um, theme, is the big increase in the empowerment of the female investor. Mm. And one of the things that we were talking about, which was super interesting before we started this podcast, and we definitely have to cover it in more detail, is men, and this is all generally, right? So it's all generally speaking. So, uh, generally speaking, men are interested in uh, a, a three or four out of 10 data points to be comfortable with a decision. And females, generally speaking, uh, are more inclined to want about twice that, about six, seven, eight or something that it was. Hmm. That to me is a really interesting concept. And if you look at, again, what's in your study, uh, it shows that there's more female investors they're investing more money, they're investing more often, and they just need more information. That to me is a lot of news. A lot of advisors out there are listening going, no, 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 mate, we've known this for a long time. But to me, that's news. Um, can you talk us through any of that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really interesting way to put it, isn't it, around that that confidence level, guys, or, 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 or male investors um, only need to know if 
fewer number of things before they think they are confident to to invest that doesn't necessarily mean they're investing right but it's, it's what we're talking about here is building confidence and building knowledge um, and for female investors before they feel confident in, in the knowledge they have they need uh, like you're saying seven out of ten things um, so I think there's a really interesting conversation there about okay how do we get female investors up to receiving that seven out of ten um things in order to feel confident and it's there's like everything there's no silver bullet here right there's whether it's tools or it's conversations or it's you know reading material or it's podcasts like this um the number of different touch points these days i think that that investors need in order to build knowledge gain trust um it's just a reflection of of the the, the world in which we live live these days um, you know when you look at the numbers um, so uh, just just over 40 percent of the uh, nine million uh, investors in Australia are female investors hmm. so already you know we know that that should be 50 50 um, so that's a pretty alarming um, I think gap there in terms of the number of investors in Australia. But I think what's what's positive is that 45% of uh, of um, investors in the last 12 months were female, so that number's starting to come up, and then over 50% of non-investors are uh, female investors, but they're intending to invest in the next 12 to 24 months. Oh, so what you're saying is for those for the cohort of people that aren't invested but are interested in investing. The majority of them are female. Well, over fifty percent now. Wow! So we're 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 increasing, I suppose, the participation rate of female investors over time, which is good. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so the more data that's accessible, the more likelihood uh, that females are going to feel comfortable with investing, and that's resulting in more investments. Yeah, well, I, I'm not so I'm not so sure that it's necessarily just data. Um, you know, some of the, the the things that came came out in relation to how do how do you engage with female investors? Uh, there was a, a strong, um, I suppose, element there of building trust. Uh, so how how do you build trust? It, it could be different for different people, right? But a lot of times it's a conversation. Um, a lot of times it's transparency. Um, a lot of times it's referral networks. Um, there's lots of different ways to build trust, but but that was a that was an important part of um, I suppose a, a way in which a, f- a female investor makes a decision um, or a decision around who they want to invest via right um, is, is around trust. So, so whereas there might be a percentage of the population that is specific to data, yes, you, you show me you know where you've added. X amount of return. Yes, it might not be that like that for uh, a certain other percentage of the population. Interesting. So um, again, just generally speaking, but females are more inclined to make decisions when there's uh, additional points of interaction beyond just the technical data. Yeah. So would would it be an inference or correct inference to suggest that females are more likely to want advice? Because that there's that conversation and there's that trust and that con and sort of that transparency, and and probably uh, your study didn't go into that, but it's it's an interesting concept because how does a female investor have a conversation 
unless they're speaking to someone who's providing the advice, unless they're just sort of getting in investment clubs, in which case they share amongst themselves. Well, there was a lot of data generated from the study, and I guarantee you we will be able to segment it um, in terms of attitudes to wanting advice by female male. So maybe I can, we can put it in your show notes. Wow, that'd be awesome if we could get that. Um, so the majority of Aussie investors are sticking to Aussie shares still. That's, that's, the, that's the overwhelming desire? Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, that's what our research showed anyway. So of the, um, let, let's put it this way, there's about 35% of the Australian population, Australian adult population. Um, so that's about 6.6 million people that hold listed investments. Um, so those are investments that sit on an exchange such as, such as the ASX. Um, so of those 6.6 million people, uh, the majority would be in direct equity. So direct equities is still far and away the, mo- the most popular I- investment uh, product, if we, wow. if we could call that, yeah, call right. that. Where we're seeing the growth, though, um, unsurprisingly to, to yourself and, and probably to a lot of your listeners, is in, in ETFs. Mm. So what the research showed is that younger demographic were, were more likely to use ETFs than other demographics as well. So um, again, younger investors more likely to use ETFs. And interestingly, while it's still a small number, uh, there's about 9% of that younger generation that an ETF was their first ever investment Hmm. as opposed to a direct share. Yeah, that's changed even in my time. My my first investment was definitely a direct equity. Mm. Um, So it's interesting to see that the message is getting across in terms of diversification, at least, um, to it to a younger cohort. Yeah, because there's a bunch there's a bunch of sort of books and also apps that are out there. Did, mm. did your study at all go into, you know, the Robin Hoods of the world, right? So yep. there's a fair bit of, um, I guess you could say, uh, interest in the market, even at the regulatory level, mm. about. These companies, such as, but I'm not singling out anyone. Mm. Um, just mentioning what was in the in the uh, in the media. Yep. Um, but there are companies out there that the regulator is saying, look, giving people unfettered access to every investment opportunity that exists is not the outcome that we're looking for from a regulatory point of view. Now, I've mm. always thought. Uh, that this concept of protecting people from investing is tricky when it's clearly not a scam because it's clearly not a scam. These Mm. are listed equities, but they potentially exist on foreign exchanges. Um, Now, if it's, if it's something like, and it's, it's quite interesting because let's talk about the property market, which is completely unregulated. Mm. It has more cowboys than not Mm. where the, uh, the the expenditure is so large mm. that uh, the banks anticipate a lifetime of working to pay off. Right? <laughs> so that's over here, and then on the other side, uh, there is five hundred dollars in Tesla on a little app, right? But the one that gets the attention is the five hundred dollars on the app. Mm. So that, to me, I, I just I don't understand why uh, the property market isn't as regulated. Um, as the uh, as the securities market, but with all that being said, what do you think? Do you have it? Do you have a view? Does the ASX have a view, or just you personally? Mm. Uh, is there an issue with younger people typically accessing foreign exchanges to 
to access small parcels of foreign shares. Do you do you see that as an issue or is, is that something that's popped up at all at the ASX? Um, yeah, so I suppose there's a few, uh, my own personal views and, and then also what, what the exchange sees. There's also, also research that has come out via this, this investor study. I think, you know, myself uh, and also the exchange, we're very strong believers in Australians um, educating themselves to make uh, good investment decisions. Now, that could be whether they're self-directed. It could be that they recognize that actually this stuff is really hard, so you should be using a licensed advisor. Um, it could be using, uh, if I could call it a gateway advisor, such as, um, you know, more a, a micro-investing app or, or further up the curve robo-advice, whatever it is that, that they can start their investing journey and make smart decisions. Um you know, I, I do know the research that, that you're referring to that's, that's been in the media. Um, I think some of it is, my personal view is some of it's a little bit too much uh, headline grabbing. I think if if investors, <laughs> let, let's be honest, like I, I've made terrible investment decisions oh, sometimes, same. right? Like betting on a small... Um, Uranium med, mine. Med, yeah, or med tech device company listed <laughs> yeah, on, on, on the ASX, right? Yeah. But, but that was all part of my, my education and I didn't blow a lot of money. Like maybe I bought a $500 worth of shares yeah. or $1,000 worth of shares. And that's sometimes sometimes how you learn. But at least we're we're we're, we're learning with a relatively small amount of money yes. in relation to our our lifetime earning capacity, right? Totally. And now I'm a and and you know the exchange in terms of our education will be very strong advocates for that whole um, core satellite approach. You know, be be smart, be conserv not conservative investment option, but be be, be smart with that core yeah. portfolio. And let's be honest, investing can be fun as well. So yeah. with your satellite, if you do want to play specific investment themes, if there's companies that you do like, you want to back, um, you, why not? But just as long as you are, you know know the risks are going to be um, and you're prepared to, to lose that money potentially. Um, I suppose that's that's the, 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 the way in which we think about it. Yeah. Um, hilariously, as just dawned on me now as I'm talking to you, um, I first learned about trade sharing by reading the book from the ASX. It's like it was called, I'm not sure if it's mm. you guys still, you know, publish it. It was Trading the ASX by the ASX. Yeah. Well, I mean, ASX has had a long history uh, of educating end investors, retail investors, right? Um, you know, even before the exchange was a single. Uh, a, sing a single entity uh, back when there were the state state-based exchanges every or the majority of the state-based exchanges used to have a public gallery area where they would hold regular investment um, seminars and investment education series um, and we still do that today we run ASX investor day annually or sometimes even twice a year um, in in capital cities and we also make it available online and that's all around investment education from beginner through to intermediate and even more advanced or, or knowledgeable investors. Um, so, yeah, the, the exchange has played a, a huge part, I think, in investment education. And then now, um, even with our online courses or the, the ASX share market game, um, it's all about that education. Um, and, you know, like we were talking about before, there's multiple touch points to that education, be that face-to-face -face or, or online. 
Um, and obviously, because uh, this being a podcast for financial planners, you guys do education days for planners as well, correct? Yeah, that's right. So we run the ASX Financial Advisor Day. Um, we actually just recently completed uh, one in June. Uh, we, we partnered with Kaplan this time, which was a fantastic experience. They're, they're a great group. Um, and no doubt, a, a lot of your advisors also subscribe to them for CPD points. And they may have seen some of the content come through via their on track module but but yeah i think we we recognize that there's a lot of either investors wanting or with existing um, ASX listed product or there's a lot of advisors um, recognizing that actually I can build a, an entire portfolio for an investor uh, using, well, obviously via a broker, but but using the product that's listed on the exchange. So, so we run a full day uh, education tailored around that where we get um, our product issuers and, and also brokers in the room talking about investment themes, product structures, uh, and even some practice development type stuff. Um, every day, you know, it's not every day these days because I don't come into town all the time, but whenever I walk past the ASX, there's always a security guard in there. <laughs> <laughs> What's his job? <laughs> so it's probably Exchange Square. <laughs> probably just stop people having too many, too many lunches in there. <laughs> Exchange Square used to be quite an open place, quite a place to come. But obviously, during COVID times, we have to restrict restrict, restrict access there. But but yeah, I mean, I love it. We still have that that um, the viewing gallery. It's not quite as um, exciting as what it would have been when the trade floor existed. But <laughs> there's a there's a viewing gallery there if you want to come and see some big boards there. Yeah, <laughs> the, I got the tickets going across the across the boards. Um, what are my mates? Uh, Paul Mann, been on the podcast a bunch of times, great, great advisor, started his career in a room like that. And the stories that he tells, it's just, uh, it's another world, isn't it? Um, so what is the plans for, uh, for the ASX, right? Because you guys are an absolute behemoth. Um, you own the market, it, but the problem with owning a market is it's, it's ask AMP, my God, right? So like if you own a market, there is a chance that, uh, or the struggle is to keep the market and to hold on to the market as new entrants sort of come in. Mm -hmm. um, from ASX point of view, what is the future focus in terms of making sure that everyone, and, and the good news is people don't like change as well, right? So that's the good news. So you you, you have that on your side. Is that, is, is the concept of, um, you know, making sure that competitors come to market uh, don't get their foot in the door. Is that is that a is that something that the ASX focuses on, and how do they view sort of adding value to investors and to advisors alike? Mm. Yeah, I mean the the exchange is such a diversified business uh, these days. It's it's um it's hard to cover or answer your 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 question satisfactorily on uh, the the time that this podcast is, is going. <laughs> we'd need we'd need a couple of hours probably, but um, I'll talk maybe just a little bit generally about the exchange, but then focus more specifically on the investment products area, which is what I represent. Um, I suppose 
what you what you can see, and this is this is obviously all public, is that the exchange over the last couple of years now um, has been making some serious investment into technology. Yeah. Um, you know, not not unlike every other business um, or every other, I suppose, smart business uh, uh, listed business, um, you need to invest in technology. But across, if there's a life cycle um, or a value chain at, at ASX, it's it's being listed then traded, cleared, settled. Um, and then there's other items uh, in relation to the exchange around the periphery. So starting off with, I suppose, that that traded piece, um, ASX just the other uh, month um, started a, a tra- what we call our trade refresh program. So that's making our trade platform more contemporary um, and refreshing it, um, upgrading it, if you like. Um, in that clearing and settlement um, space, a lot of your listeners, I'm, I'm sure, would be familiar with the chess replacement project. So this is a, a huge project. Um, it's a it's a multi year project, and it's a once in a generation type project. Mm. Effectively, where ASX is swapping out our chess system. So chess and is, this involves the blockchain, doesn't it? Somehow, I read in the I read in the media. Yeah. So there's. Um, I wouldn't say it involves the blockchain. What we refer to it as, I suppose, is the distributed ledger technology. Sorry, yes, yep. that, that's the more accurate term, yes. Yeah, it's very easy then to go blockchain, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, yeah, yeah, touche, touche, touche. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so it is, just, it is, right, this distributed ledger. Yeah, so, I mean, if I step back, um, perhaps, you know, in the late 80s, ASX introduced chess into the Australian market that... Um, dematerialized or, or digitized, if you like, share certificates mm. so that you had now an electronic record of ownership um, that was sponsored by the broker. Um, that all sits on ASX's infrastructure, um, literally in our, our cages in, the, in, the, in wow. our data center. The, the unfortunate thing, of course, is we're now 25, you know, almost 30 <laughs> years on. Um, and it's, it's a fair done, few trades. Isn't it? <laughs> it's done an incredible job. It was, uh, I suppose, arguably, um, I know I'm talking our own book here, but arguably world leader in terms of what it did at the time. So now ASX, funnily enough, is going through the same uh, hmm. cycle uh, again now 25, 30 years later, whereby we're, we're I suppose, developing a, a new technology in order to um, facilitate the same process that is the digitization and, and record of your share ownership yeah which um, is which is super uh, technical right this this distributed ledger ultimately now I'm only going from what I've read in the media um, and looking at it from a theoretical point of view and it solves something called, the Byzantine or the Byzantine problem where where two things have to update simultaneously, but they can't be copied anywhere else. So I, I would imagine, um, and having no insight into the into the tech itself, but I'd imagine that would what you're trying to replace, is it trying to update the buyer and the seller without the need of a certificate? Is that what it's essentially doing? 
Oh, listen, as, as you said, it's, it's highly technical. So <laughs> our, our technologists would be better to talk to it. But, sure. but if you, if you look at, um, the way in which after a trade occurs, the way in which clearing and settlement, um, happens in Australia or, 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 or arguably around the world, there's many, uh, actors that are acquired in order to, to make that happen. Um, now one of the challenges with that is, let's say if ASX is sitting in the middle and then you've got all the other participants sitting around the side, everyone is maintaining their own database or their, their own source of truth in yes. terms of the ownership of that, that record, that those X number of shares that someone holds. There's a lot of replication over the market in order to, to make that happen. Um, I suppose the, the, the multi-year uh, sort of plan or vision from, from ASX is that, well, actually, you, you don't necessarily need everyone replicating the same processes in order to achieve that, that single source of truth for, right. for who owns what. Um, that can be shared and that can be shared on a distributed ledger technology. That's a, like, it's amazing because this is, I mean, the ASX, the first, really the first large institution, as far as I'm aware, to implement this distributed ledger technology, which is really groundbreaking. It's genuinely really, really groundbreaking. Um, when I read that the ASX was doing that, um, I was like, wow, that is super, super early adopter. Will that reduce, and I'm sure you, you don't know at this stage, but will that reduce the T plus three or four, you know, whatever it is that those trading days for everything to clear out. Well, do you feel like that might reduce that number? Uh, so at the moment we will operate to T plus two. T so, plus two. Yeah, yep. T plus two. I mean, the theory is, is that it, it could. The, the question is, do you want to and does the market want to, mm. right? And, and you don't necessarily want that to happen. Um, I think that's all, all that type of stuff is still five, 10 years away. Um, yep. I think what, ASX is putting in place now is um, at a very base level, um, yes, innovative technology. There's lots of things in that in terms of how participants interact with that, which we won't go into on on this um, forum here. But suffice to say, I think they're putting in, um, let's call it a piece of infrastructure that over 5, 10, 15 years, People will innovate on top of that. Organizations hmm. will innovate and build on top of that. But, right. but suffice to say, I think there's, there's a, a new technology infrastructure being put in place. Um, and the, the view is, is that it would hopefully make the market more efficient in terms of how that, those clearing settlement and back office processes operate. Right. So it's almost viewing it from the point of view of, uh, like zero started out as accounting software, but now they have zero con where there's a million different companies that plug in and add different reports and value off the top of that right so the asx is viewing it so that not only is this going to make things more efficient but it will include it will create new market makers and new maybe maybe not exactly market makers but it will include new um, services over the top that that work really well on a technological uh front yeah, well, I think that's that's the idea that other providers can come in, create apps, create services or technology that sits on top of the the infrastructure. Wow, super mm. interesting, mate. Um, yeah. the, so- the just to just to wrap back around, I suppose um, on the the investment products, the, the investment product side in terms of where our focus is, is you know, you, you touched on a really important point I think before, which is 
you know, sometimes product proliferation can can confuse investors. Yes. Um, and prevent people from from making choices. So yeah, I think one of our focus points is a how do we get that product admission right? And I think we're seeing lots of great and innovative products come to market, and and we definitely hope that that continues. So I think that's going to be one area um, of focus for us. And then the other area is around continues to be on that education side. So education to to retail investors education uh, in partnership to financial advisors. I think that's really important as, um, you know, more investors in particular segments of investors use ASX as a, as a building block or, or a way in which to build their portfolio. Awesome. Look, thank you so much for coming in. I realize ASX is a huge company uh, and you handle uh, the investment side of things. So, so I appreciate you coming in, sharing all this, um, especially with the investor study that you guys uh, did with all those insights, um, I may, uh, is it free? The investor study, yeah, yeah, yeah good point. So uh, if you go to our website, asx.com.au, um, you'll be able to find a link to the study there. And there's a, a booklet that you can download. Uh, there's also lots of infographics and charts and, and whatnot. So um, yeah, there's a plethora of information from it. Mate, well, thank you very much for coming on um, and sharing everything today. No worries. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers.